welcome to Behavior Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We have conversations with guests that help us understand and gain insights into why do we do what we do? Then we explore how we can apply those insights to work and life. In this episode, we get a perspective that comes from the founder of a nonprofit. So, Tim, you seem like a volunteering kind of guy. <laughs> yeah, I ha- am. Have you had a recent volunteering experience that you'd like to share with us? Yeah, I have. Tell yeah. us about it. So there's a local organization called Feed My Starving Children that does a great job of orienting their volunteers. And they get between 60 and 100 volunteers every day, twice a day. Uh, so they get bunches and bunches of people coming through. And they do two things that are really great. The first thing is that they connect everyone to the mission. So they sit you down and they show you a, a video of connecting the work that you're do- going to be doing today to the people who are going to be on the receiving end. Wow. And it's about it's about food. So and it's it's live and it's or it's this video experience it's beautiful. Uh, and so you see the kids that are receiving the food that you're going to be preparing. And then the second thing is that they show you a video on how to do the jobs that you're going to be doing. So everybody feels comfortable walking into the workroom because there's a whole bunch of different tasks and they've just shown you a video to get you comfortable with these are the things that I'm going to be doing. And so that makes me feel as, especially as a a first time or an early volunteer, oh, I don't have to worry so much because they're there to take care of me. And then there's people walking the floor and coaching, but it it makes a big difference to have a a good opening experience Um, in any volunteer situation. So they provided you with insight of the why and how to help you really feel acclimated to the the volunteering experience that you were doing. Absolutely, both why and how. So our conversation today with Terry Esau explores how he accidentally applies many behavioral science insights into his nonprofit, Free Bikes for Kids, including Tim, how he treats his volunteers, and how he gets them excited about doing that work. Which is really cool. Terry is more complex than just a guy who founded this incredible uh, nonprofit. He's also an author and a speaker, but he has spent most of his career composing music for documentary films, television, and radio ads. You you have no connection with him at all, oh, did you? And this was so much fun to talk to him. He composed the music for more than 2,000 TV commercials for clients, including Target, McDonald's, Pepsi, Harley Davidson, Honda, mm-hmm. yeah, Subway, Golden Grams, and even Kitty Litter. <laughs> that he, he's he's even won a Clio Award for his work in advertising. So wow. he's pretty terrific. So hop on your bike and go out and volunteer while you listen to our very interesting accidental behavioral scientist interview with Terry Esau. Terry Esau. Welcome to the Behavioral Group Studios. Hi, it's great to be here with you guys. It's good to have you. Good to have you. Uh, Kurt, shall we start with a speed round? Let's start with a speed round. All right, so Terry, life without a mobile phone or life without a laptop? Which would you have to pick? Uh, that's a hard one. I'd probably say without a laptop. Okay. It's pretty tough to live without a mobile phone these days. Isn't it crazy? I mean, yeah. 10, 20 years ago, we didn't, you know, I would just have, have I would have really sore thumbs <laughs> if I didn't have a laptop. Or I would just use dictation and have to correct the auto dictation constantly. <laughs> there it, you go. Because it never gets it right. Up the mountain or down the mountain? Uh, well, now, you know, I'm a cyclist, so... When I hear that, I'm thinking riding a bike. Okay. I, I do like going up, but going down is way more fun. Because <laughs> uh, I've actually almost hit 60 miles per hour going down a mountain on my bike. Wow. So, yeah, passing cars. Wow. It's awesome. And that's not when you're drafting, right? I mean, I, I've no, heard well, what was at, 186 miles an hour. This, 83 was 183 the record yeah, yeah, that no. just got broken. This was not on the salt flats. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. All right. Travel with a set itinerary or no itinerary? No itinerary. All right. There. Wow. Okay. And then, have to ask, unicycle or bicycle? Bicycle. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he just I, laughs. I, we get unicycles donated to us every year, and yeah. I actually took one home and tried it in the basement a little bit, but I go, I'm going to smack my head completely open if I keep doing this. <laughs> 
My, it's, it's, it's a, do you guys ride a unicycle? I, I do not, but my, my daughter just got into yeah. it. She bought a unicycle with her own money. She mm-hmm. is nine years old and she is once she goes to a friend of hers has, they go to a, a unicycle club and mm-hmm. they, so she does, she's all into it. Now it's winter in Minnesota. So yeah, she yeah. bought it right at the beginning of winter. And so now she has not really, a lot of unicycling outside in these. No, in these, not much. This, no. So, so anyway, there we go. I, so, Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I call my bicycle, my carbon fiber therapist. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. so she serves multiple purposes with me. And, you know, and, and that's takes an all year round thing yeah. for you. She is takes that right? care of me mentally and physically. So. And, and do you bike year round regardless of weather? Uh, I do. I don't bike as much in winter. I was just out on my fat bike yesterday, um, and it's fun. But I love I love warm weather and just cruising on it. Well, and and this winter the snow hasn't been as bad, so there are more bicyclists out in Minneapolis yeah. than oftentimes in in the winter. But I love the people with their fat bikes. They got their glove, the 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 hand warmers. Yeah, they yeah. got their goggles on. They got everything in there. Yeah. Riding in the worst weather ever, and I just yeah. give them kudos because I'm going. No, that's uh, that's an awful lot of work for me. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah. I give them kudos. I mean, yeah. good for them. It's fun. They're it's slow. They're therapists. They're yeah. heavy. They're slow. They're slow. I oh, like fast bikes. Fast bikes are yeah. crazy, crazy. Hence the carbon fiber therapist, not a aluminum therapist. You got it. <laughs> or steel therapist. Steel. Steel. Yeah. steel. There you go. Going yeah. way back in the Too day. Too much iron. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, definitely. Slows you down. So, so Terry, you founded an organization that we have to we have to talk about here, and that is Bikes for Kids, Free uh, Bikes for Kids, Free Bikes for Kids. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about what was it that got you interested in this whole idea of making sure that kids got bikes for free? Well, I I call myself a bikeaholic, so and and I think of that as a positive term. I, it's a better than many of the other aholics that we yeah, can right, think of, right? right? It, yeah. it's, it's a semi-healthy addiction, <laughs> okay. and I'm not trying to kick it. Okay, um, okay. But like when I was uh, you know, 12 years old or whatever, I don't remember, I, I got a paper route because I got paid to ride my bike. And then my brother and I would build these ramps, and we'd collect neighborhood kids and make them lie down in the street, and we'd see how many kids we could jump <laughs> over. With that, our bikes. And, and we almost always made it. <laughs> almost always. <laughs> Any <laughs> listeners, we don't recommend yeah. you try this at yeah, home. Right. Don't try yeah. this at our home. Our parents didn't recommend it either. I, I think after my brother missed once, that was the end. Uh, but then when I was 16, the day that school let out in spring, my buddy and I got on our bikes and we rode to the West Coast and back. You know, which... Still blows me away that my parents would let me do that at 16 years old. I think it's pretty amazing you did that in one day, too. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, yeah, and then I, I kind of, well, I kind of walked, I, I walked away from the bicycle. My bike was stolen during college, and then I, I didn't get another bike for a while. And then I realized that guitars were much better for, for attracting chicks in, <laughs> in, in college. So yeah. I said, screw the bike. Let's, let's get, you know, let's focus on the guitar here. There you go. <laughs> um, but then I came back to the bicycle, uh, you know, a little bit later and then I started racing on my bike and, and I, I started free bikes for kids simply because I looked around and saw all of my friends had bikes in their garages that were collecting dust, usually kids bikes that their kids had outgrown. And you had a you had a, like a little bike bicycling club, right? That yeah, you yeah. And it met every Saturday. So it was a group of people that you right. were familiar with their bikes and everything else. Again. Yeah. So yeah, I had a, a cycling club that meets in my driveway on Saturday mornings. And uh, and I actually got a call one day saying, hey, we know this family. And it was the beginning of December. Christmas is coming. This family couldn't afford to buy a present for the kids. So they said, hey, Terry, does one of your friends have a bike? I called and it's like literally almost all of them had a bike they could donate. <laughs> and so I called up uh, Care 11, which I had done all of their uh, news theme music for. Which like, is the local NBC affiliate in right, uh, Minneapolis. Right. 
Um, and I had done all of their news themes for, well, I did it for like 30 years. Which we will get to in a little while. We will? Okay. Yes. Um, and, and I just said, can I come on and invite people to donate your bikes to me and my cycling buddies? We're going to fix them up and give them away to kids for Christmas. And they go, sure. So in two weeks, we got 250 bikes. We fixed them up, gave them away. <sighs> my friends all said, that was fun. Let's do it next year. And we gave away about 750 and. My friend said, that's fun. Let's do it again next year. And we gave away about 1500 And I said, okay, guys, this is fun, but this is a lot of work. <laughs> How about if we form a nonprofit? Uh, let's get a board. I'll go find some corporate sponsorship. We did that. And then that year, we gave away 5,000 bikes. And today, you guys have locations not just in Minneapolis, but right. across the country, right? So we're in eight cities right now. We've given away 60,000 bikes. Wow. Um, we hold the Guinness World Record for most, most bikes collected in one day, which the record says was 5,512. But then the following year, we collected almost 10,000 in one day. But we figured we already owned the record, so why spend the money to set another one? <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, I just have to call attention to the fact that there is a record about collecting bikes in yeah. one day. Yeah. There is I, a record about everything. Today. Yeah, right. I, uh, have okay. you seen the Have you seen the size of those books? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess enough said, right? And yeah. and yeah. just this is a slam to the Guinness World Record, which is located in the UK. Mm -hmm. The yeah. minimum cost to set a world record is eight grand. So, so you're you're basically the record setters are paying for the production of the book. Yes, basically. yes, that's exactly right. Okay, oh which is another reason why we didn't. Decide to spend the money to break our own record. Yeah. Um, yeah. If somebody breaks it, we may. I mean, the marketing that came out of that was good for us, and it got us some good publicity and stuff. So okay. was it worth eight grand? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> so that was, that was a big jump to collect 5,000 yes. that year. Yeah. Uh, and how did you do it? How, I mean, it, it takes a lot of you know human power, right? You've got yeah, to have yeah. a lot of people and space. And right. Uh, we, Coordination. Yeah, our model is very different than most models uh, that do what we do. In fact, that's I looked at it and said, most models that are collecting, refurbishing, giving away bikes are very inefficient. They do it year-round. They have to have space year-round. They have to have staff year-round, recruit volunteers year-round. So uh, we collect one day a year in each city, and then we refurbish for eight weeks. Then we give away over the course of a weekend or a little more, and we shut it down. Um, what was the question again? <laughs> how do you how do you process? Oh, how do you do so, it? How do you get it? Yeah, so just what we say. found is if if people have to drive more than ten minutes to donate a bike, they probably won't do it. Is this through extensive research? Or yeah. Just, well, we're or just yeah we're just keen observation. Every year we look at what happened and we look at best practices and we go, how do we tweak our model? And we went through the Kaizen method of lean manufacturing to help perfect the efficiency and the, you know, the whole model that way too. Mm -hmm. But so like in here in Minneapolis, St. Paul, we have 50, little over 50 collection points. And, you know, so nobody has to drive more than 10 minutes to donate a bike. And we, we get a lot of publicity for it. So a lot of people know about it. It's not hard to get people to donate bikes if they know about it and if it's convenient. And then we had uh, 54 trucks that drove a loop. Uh, they each had three sites, I think, that they had to pick up from. And they start uh, donating bikes at 9 a.m. And they're done at 1. And by about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, you know, seven, 8,000 bikes have been picked up, have been donated, picked up, delivered, uh, triaged and placed into one of our 15 categories in a warehouse that we get someone to donate for free because um, we've never paid for space and we've had like 110, 130,000 square foot warehouses that wow. have been donated for free because we would, only need them for two and a half months. Right, but I would think you need a lot of space to process we do. Uh, seven or 8,000 bikes in, uh, yeah. you know, over the course of a few weeks. And so... I have, I have a couple questions. One is the triage process. So help walk us through what that triage process is. And you said you had 15 different categories. And I, you don't need to get into all 15, yeah, right, but right, right. talk about what, what, well, the what triage, they kind of are. Uh, some listeners, maybe I shouldn't be saying this online, but uh, every bike that is donated is not refurbished and given away. Mm. 
Um, some bikes that we get are beyond t- repair, total rust buckets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and somebody is looking at us as a garbage removal service, I guess. That's, but I, I, and sort of that's okay, right? I mean, you yeah. you accept that as part yep. of the in the bigger scheme scheme yeah. of things. One year we tried to do a thing where when people brought one of those to a donations point, we asked them to say, you know what, we we can't fix this bike, and we had people who were really offended by that. Yeah, and so we said, forget that. We're gonna we take every bike. We say thank you very much. You get a tax receipt. You know, you can claim whatever you think the value of that bike was and deduct it from your taxes. Um, but yeah, uh, you asked about triaging. Um, what we do is when the bike come arrives at the warehouse, we, we have what we call our bike captains who have been trained in the process and they, we have a, uh, it takes about 15 seconds to triage a bike and determine, are we going to fix this bike or not? Wow. 15 so, seconds. Yeah. So they, wow. they pick it up, um, they drop it okay. on the cement does anything fall off? <laughs> um, Clue number one. Yeah, yeah. Something falls off. Yeah. Not so good. Goes over yeah. here. All right. I mean, is it rusty? They spin both wheels. Are the are the you know are the wheels good, or are we going to have to put new wheels on this thing? Right. Uh, we don't do anything with tires because we replace a lot of tires and tubes. Um, we look at the derailleurs yep. shifting if it has it, and go: Is this rusted solid? Is it movable? Is it fixable? And so it's just. Real basic things. We check the brakes, um, and we go. Th- we kind of look at it and go, "Can this bike be cleaned, prepped, and repaired in a two hours, two and a half hours max?" Okay. If it's going to take longer than that, we're going. This bike is better serving as a as a an organ donor. We take parts <laughs> off it to fix other bikes. So if it costs too much or if it takes too much time, it becomes a donor. Right. Okay. And we, you know, we save tens of thousands of dollars in uh, parts costs yeah. by stealing parts from other bikes. Yeah. So it all works. Yeah. Are you ever in a situation where you don't have enough parts? Uh, yeah. Well, we, we purchase parts. We, we also have um, QBP, Quality Bike Products, which is located here. Uh, they're probably the largest bike part supplier to bike shops in the country. And uh, the CEO, Steve Flagg, was on our board for a while. And they give us ten dollars to $12,000 of free parts at cost every year. Wow. That's terrific. So, yeah. So That's a lot terrific. of the parts, the new parts come from there. And then we, we do have to purchase tires and tubes and stuff like that, too. Okay. Are you ever afraid that you're going to run out of bikes no. that people give. I We've no. talked about this it's, before, so it's a, tell this. Yeah. We've looked at the sustainability aspect of it. Um, oh, shoot. Now I can't remember what the number is. Uh, I think it's it's between 20 and 25 million bikes are sold in the U.S. every year. Wow. A third of those are 20-inch wheel size or smaller. Which is the kid bikes that you're yeah. looking at. So this is like a first grader on down almost, maybe second grader. Okay. Um, so, okay, let's say that's, uh, you know, seven or eight million bikes that are sold each year that are probably going to be outgrown in another year or two. And that doesn't even take into account all the bikes that are already out there sitting in garages. So I think the sustainability aspect of it is I, I will never run out of bikes. You'll never run out of people saying, yeah, we no. have... Sally's bike in the garage that's been sitting there for four years and hasn't been ridden once. Yeah. yeah. And we would love to. The only see thing it that being would used. kill our program is if people stopped having babies. <laughs> oh, doggone it. Don't think that's going to yeah, happen. I'm pretty sure that's a safe bet. That's, that's a, a safe pretty bet. safe yeah. bet. So once, so once the bikes are triaged, yes. um, now you've got uh, how many weeks b- between? Eight weeks. You've got eight weeks between pickup day and, uh, and delivery day. Right. Of giveaway day. Right. So uh, how many volunteers do you have to have in the warehouse uh, working on these bikes? You know, how many hours get, get put in to get them all fixed up? I can tell you, it's, it's probably, it's close to 20,000 volunteer hours. Um, in eight in, weeks. In eight weeks, yeah. And probably uh, three to 4,000 unique volunteers. So wow. now we get a lot of volunteers who volunteer one time and they come back. 
So uh, we, we don't necessarily track all of that information, but we do track how many unique volunteers we get. Yeah. So, and that's, that's just here in Minneapolis-St. Paul. So now we have this going in eight other cities too. So I, um, I think, I, I actually just did the figures for 2018. So we were over 30,000 volunteer hours if you combine all, all of our cities. A lot of the, the other cities are all much newer, so they're just getting started. You know, so they're on year one or year two. So they're collecting 500 bikes or 1,000 or you know, 1,500 bikes. Not nearly to the scale right. that you have gotten over right. the years. Because you started this in 2008. So right. this has been right. 10 years in, in Minneapolis and, right. and kind of growing from there. Now, do you get a lot of volunteers from um, corporations? Do they come in and say, hey, we have yes. a community service day and we were going to bring in 50 people or various and, and align is one of your your keynote sponsors do they bring people yep. in yep alina gives us a lot of volunteers but we actually corporate volunteer groups make up almost 50 percent of our volunteer force wow 50 50 percent and we know that we we need those groups yeah because can, can you use skilled and unskilled labor absolutely so we divide our process into three. It's cleaners, preppers, and mechanics. Cleaners, you know, we basically, we actually have, we've designed a volunteer registration uh, system on our website. So you go on and it says, it asks you a question. Have you ever cleaned, or no, have you ever changed a tire? Uh, if you say no, it says, congratulations, you're a cleaner. <laughs> and uh, and it shoots in uh, a video to them that shows them how we clean bikes. Have you ever changed they, a bike tire or tube? Here, yeah, right yep. here. If you uh, say yes to that, then it takes you to a second question. Have you ever uh, adjusted a derailleur or changed a bottom bracket? If you say no, it says congrats, you're a prepper, which means you're going to change tires and tubes. You're going to put on new pedals, new grips. Maybe a, a new saddle or a saddle for, that we steal from another bike. Take off reflectors that are broken. So it's not highly mechanical skill, but a little bit. Right. So and if you say yes to that question, it says, congrats, you're a mechanic. And again, they get a, a video automatically sent to them that shows them exactly what they're going to do when they get to our warehouse. Right. Which is part of you know, what we learned through Kaizen and uh, some of that stuff. It, it's, a, it's a wonderfully simple triage component for your volunteers on the website. I mean, just looking at it and using it. And what a great way of being able to allow people to have that element where you're feeling positive about what you're doing, even if you can't be a right. mechanic, you're, you're still helping and, and you're not shaming anybody by saying, not well, shaming anybody. You're, no, let's do a test. Done. Here we go. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wait, you guys are over well, here. You, you guys suck. Are yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, it's a wonderful way of, of, yeah. of thinking about doing that kind of simple and well, and when you, when you think about it, our program lives or dies with our volunteers. Yeah. So we've, we have worked really hard to go, how do we create the best volunteer experience possible? And, and, you know, so it's like we come in and we help them. In fact, we've, we've talked about uh, having some people from the Guthrie come in and work with our host to train them how to tell the story so that when people come in, we tell this compelling story to them and we make them understand that you're not just cleaning or fixing a bike. You're changing the life of this kid who's never had a bike. You're putting a smile on their face. You're helping to, them to stay healthy. You know, all this stuff. So w we take a lot of pride in how do we create the, the best volunteer experience so when people leave, they go, that was awesome. I well, want to come back. Well, tell us about that story. Because in our last time that we talked, you're talking about, you know, it's this ticket to the world. These bikes, these, the, the, the kids that are getting these bikes are not the run-and-mill mom-and-pop in a suburban, right. you know, with two cars and a nice house. These right. are these are kids who have a, a dis big need for it, and this might be the first real thing that they ever have as theirs, right? It's, yeah. it's, and it's freedom, too, right? Right, right. Well, I would say that the bike is the most important thing a kid owns between a teddy bear and a car. Okay. <laughs> you know, where... It, it's a big, it's a big deal yeah. because, like you said, it is. It's their first ticket to freedom. It's a lot of times it's the first chance where they start to go explore outside of their 
immediate neighborhood. It's maybe a chance to get to after-school activities that they wouldn't be able to. A lot of a lot of these kids, they you know, they might have a single parent family. That person, the mom or dad, is off working. They can't get them to these after-school things. And it's it could be sports, it could be music, it could be theater, it could be all that kind of stuff. You know, so so it opens that up, and that also opens them up to mentorship. So they have a coach, they yeah. have a director, they have, you know. This is an experience now that brings them into contact with somebody who could potentially be a mentor for that kid. And change their lives. So it changes it that way. It gets these kids away from, you know, screen time. Mm -hmm. So it now proactively makes them healthy. Um, And we know that an active kid does better in school. That's cognitively, it it helps your brain to focus. So there's so many aspects of it. Uh, and, and we believe that um, the diversity and equity aspect of cycling has been a little skewed, mm. you know. And so we actually want to broaden people who are on bikes and say, this is something that is for everybody. Right. Let, let's rewind just a little bit. Uh, go back to, so we've been through the process of, of collecting the bikes of repairing and preparing the bikes for giveaway day. Let's go back to giveaway day. You use some, some uh, what I think is a really cool uh, behavioral science twist on how you give the bikes away. So can you tell the listeners about how you, you present the kids with bikes and how, and, and how that process works? Okay, if, if I'm not getting to what you're actually asking here, let me know. Um, so the... Uh, the main way that we give away bikes. So we decided very early on, I'll just tell you a little story. I think it was our first year. We didn't really know what we were doing. You know, so... so <laughs> kind of like, uh, like Tim and me every yeah. day. Every day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, I'm not so sure I still know, but um, we just... It, this was a small thing, you know, 250 bikes. We put an ad in the local paper in the suburb on the west side of Minneapolis where I live and said, hey, if you've had a tough year financially, you can't afford to give your kid a, a present, come on down. We'll give him a bike. Okay. Well, this lady showed up in a mink coat and she goes, you know, this is fantastic <laughs> because we have to, every year we have to schlep our bikes up to the cabin. Now we can just have bikes there and here. Yeah. And I just... I gave her a couple of beats to think <laughs> and said, um, you know, that, that's not what we're doing here. Yeah. You know, and she was like, oh, the lights went on and she kind of oh, tail between her legs wow. and walked out the door. Oh, gosh. Um, so what we decided very soon after that is it's a tricky thing to be in the business of vetting people mm. to decide, do you deserve to have a free bike? Right. And I said... We don't want to be in that role. What we need to do is we need to invite uh, organizations, whether it's a CBO or FBO or schools, that are already working with low-income families. Let's invite them to apply to become a benefiting partner of ours. So every year we get, I don't know, 150 organizations that apply. We take about 100 of them locally. And then we vet them. Uh, so we go, are you doing a good job? Are you keeping the dignity of people intact? You know, so we go, so we, yeah, we literally vet them. And then when we go, yeah, this is an organization we want to work with, uh, then we say, okay, now you have to, or they say, we need five, we say, how many bikes do you need? And they might say 500. And we say, we're spreading this around. We'll give you 200. Right. Now you have to give us the name, age, gender, and height of each child. Then we match them with one of our 15 categories and we say, this is the day, this is the time, and this is the place where they will come to get a bike. And, 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 and that's basically... Right, so, so, so this organization then alerts the family... Yes, says that this day and time is when the, your bike is going to be available, and the the parents or guardians typically come in with the, the children. We we hope. Yeah, yeah, that's the ideal, right? Yeah, it doesn't always work that way, and sometimes parents come in without without the child, which we don't like that either. Right, right. So, but, uh, but but you've got a warehouse of thousands of bikes. Right. Do you you you're just not going to let these kids go willy nilly no, no, no. through the warehouse? 
Well, we may have done that like in one of our early years. And then <laughs> and once again, and then you, you learned. learned. <laughs> and we learned, yeah. What we did is we, we should just purchase these, but we, we rent about a, 150 feet of curtain and rod kind of thing. So that separates the mass of bikes from the ones that they get to choose from. So in, in the 15 categories, we'll put six bikes out in front of the curtain in each category. So the kid comes through, they get registered, they get a name tag, they get measured one more time to make sure we have the correct height for them. They get a brand new helmet, gets fitted. Now they get to shop for a bike, but they get to shop from six bikes. From their category. From From their category of six bikes. So they get a colored dot that matches with a category on their name tag. Now they get a personal shopper who goes with them through the whole process. And that shopper will take them to the right category. They get to choose one. Then they go, and that bike gets fitted for them. So it's the right size, and the saddle is adjusted right, and all that kind of stuff. We usually partner with Bike Men or some other local organization that's more about education. And we'll have a bike rodeo where they'll teach them how to signal, how to, you know, make sure they know how to stop. Bike safety. Start, bike safety kind of stuff. Yeah, and then we go out and gets put on their car or in public transportation. And I see I think this is this is part of the magic that one of the things that you've learned is that the tyranny of choice can just rip us apart. Yes. Right? And and, and so by limiting that to just six bikes, yeah. that's what I have to choose from. Um, helps really focus that that young person's uh, point of view on okay, now what do I what do I want? Yeah. You know, what is it that I want from this this small number? There's I think only, that that's just really well, cool. There's only one error in what you said. You said this young person's. It's usually the parents that are the problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, because um, the parents will go, well, have you looked at that one? Have you looked at that one? Wait, what's behind the curtain? Yeah. You know? Oh, they, do they ask that? Oh, sure they do. You know, yeah. Can we go look there? Those no. damn parents. <laughs> but, but it is. It's it's interesting. You're doing that. The 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 selection component. You're you're that that choice is way too much when it gets to be too big. Right. Yeah, it's Yet too you're much. giving them a choice. So now yeah. it's not this bike that is being given to you and you didn't have any say in it. You actually yep. got to pick and choose. So now you even have more of an ownership yep. component because right. I picked this yeah. bike. This yeah. is my bike. Yeah, you guys, I mean, you're hitting exactly on one of, I think is one of the most important aspects of what we do yeah. is these kids do not get to go shopping. You know, so for them to actually go shopping for a bike, and we, we call it that, you yeah. get to go shopping for a bike, you know, it's a big deal for them. And, you know, it usually is very simple for them. Almost every kid picks a bike based on color. <laughs> you know? How great My, is that? That's, yeah. a, that, that's a terrific, yeah. uh, you know, a feature to choose on as far as yeah. I'm concerned. And I want to say sometimes, you know, like when I take a kid shopping, I, okay, you know, here's a, a Specialized or a Trek or, a, yeah. you know, or a Gary Fisher. And, and how the, meaningful is that to these kids? Uh, no, it doesn't mean anything to them. <laughs> but I, I want the blue one. I yeah. want the blue one. Yeah, and, and part of me goes, that blue bike is really kind of a piece of garbage. <laughs> but... It doesn't matter. Doesn't matter for what they're going to be using it for, and and all of that, and that pride that they then instills with them because it's theirs, and they picked it and they like it. It's the same. I mean, the same psychology with my kids, right? Yeah, yeah. And you sit there, and you know, we we just bought skis for my son, and you know, it was I'm like going, well, what about these? These are the you know, and he's like, uh, he kind of looked at him and going, why? And it was. You could tell it was the color. He was yeah, like, yeah. He he liked was the blue like, ones. He, yeah. yeah, he wanted the green ones. You know, I don't give me those those ugly yellow whatever ones. Yeah. I wanted the green ones. So, yeah. fine. So. so, Terry, we we know that you have a, a background in um, in music and production, and and. Um, I just find it fascinating because it's pretty rare that we actually get to talk to people who have been in the musical community and in the world of production as as you have. Um, so this and, is. 
And and you came in and you said, "What about our our wonderful studio? It, it runs hot." Is that I, I don't even know the terms you guys are using. You guys are talking <laughs> a little, little a live. whole it's live. different yeah. live live because uh-huh. you know it is my dining room. I so. hear echoes. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. I, I, that's right. So listeners, all that echo you hear, that's natural yeah. to the room. Right. <laughs> yeah. I uh, in my studio, I had. Machines that could create a room exactly this size if I wanted it to sound this way. You know, you could actually. This is not. This is not machine made. No, this um, is analog echo. Uh, but you were not uh, writing uh, for a local band. You had a pretty specific. Um, you had a whole career actually built right. around this. So tell listeners a little bit about what what you have been involved in musically. Well, so yeah, I spent about 25 years writing and producing music for mostly for TV commercials, but for radio, for uh, I scored documentary films, industrial films, some TV show stuff, some live theater stuff. Um, so yeah, I, I had a, a bank building that I bought and turned into a recording studio and uh, um, yeah, it was fun. <laughs> I mean, the beauty of it was, you know, I I studied music. I, I have a music degree, but I'm I'm not a great musician. But I I was never the guy who was going to be performing. I you know I as soon as I started doing what I did, I could hire the best musicians in town, or go to L.A. or go to New York and hire the the best musicians and singers there. So I very quickly go. These people are a lot better than me because they actually practice. You just had the guitar for the looks. It was right? for chicks, yeah. man. Yeah. It's like, hey, yeah, right. Yeah. Which um, I assume worked. You know, we, we we you did tee that up that that the bike was a was good for your therapy, but the guitar was the good the, for my love life. Good, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and although I think I'm not sure if my my my. Wife is all that fascinated with my guitar anymore. <laughs> Sorry, Mary. Yeah, well, yeah. you know, you're happily married there. Yeah, yeah. You got, you, yeah. You, you, it served its purpose. It, yeah, go. right, right. There. So what do you listen to these days? So uh, after all these years of being involved in composing and production, uh, uh, especially things that last, you know, 30 seconds or less, what, what do you like to listen to? Well, I, I actually do like listening to commercials. Um, you know, because I, I find them fascinating and I, I'm in some way it's an addiction, you know, I mean the, the, the British commercials, you watch some of that stuff. I don't know if you've seen every year they'll come out with the the best ones. Yeah. The awards are always terrific, aren't they? Yeah. They're just great. Um, I listen to the current. Okay. Which is, uh, again, a local, uh, Radio station public, here, public, public radio, radio public station, radio. but it is uh, eclectic nature, more more alternative, but very. You'll you'll hear Janis Joplin next to uh, Frank Sinatra know, next, next to, to Imagine Wild. Dragons. You know, yeah. right? So. Yeah. So I I find that really interesting, and it's like when I'm driving between meetings or something, I you know I hear something and I. I grab my phone and go. Uh, you got. You got to check this out. You know. Yeah. So it's a reminder of for me. Well, and, but and then. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, but then I go back. You know, because I grew up. I graduated from high school in '72, so I grew up with Crosby, Stills, Nash. You know, and I just loved that stuff. And and I played trumpet in high school and college, so um, I loved horn bands. You know, Chicago. I, I, I love Chicago. I love Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Was one oh, yeah. of my favorites because uh, they were they were a little more of a jazz aspect than Chicago was. Did you have a preference for the Al Cooper days versus the David Clayton Thomas days? Did you have some? Well, I, you know what? I love David Clayton Thomas. <laughs> I mean, I actually tried to hire him once to sing on something, but um, tried. Yeah. Well, there's. It, it wasn't always so easy to get. You know, you could. In my business, you could always try to get somebody, but if the cost was prohibitive, oh, yeah. you know, you couldn't always get the client to agree to that. Yeah. Was, was, um, was David just a little too expensive? You know, I can't even remember what the specific was with him. But I mean, I, I got to work with uh, Alice Cooper, you know, and Amy Grant. And, oh, wow. Uh, wow. Wow. Um, Talk about diverse. Yeah, there, there's, there's a variety there. Yeah. And super um, talented. Yeah. I first heard Amy Grant when I was uh, a freshman in college, and I think she was 
it was a recording of her in a performance. She was like 19 years old. and Or maybe 16. Maybe 16. Because her first thing happened when she was 16. Just a uh, tremendous talent. Yeah. She riffed on one song idea saying, well, what if I played this in a classical mode? And yeah. then and then she 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 does this kind of Baroque-like thing on the piano and, and, oh, yeah, and yeah. sings something. Yeah, and then I've she heard said, that. And then what if I did it in a in a rock and roll mode? And then she riffs this this heavy and it's the same song. And yeah. I was I was in music school. Yeah. And I was like, right. I shouldn't be here. <laughs> I was like, wow. Can I tell you a story about my yeah. recording session with Amy. Yeah, yeah. So this was, uh, I was doing a Target Christmas campaign. I, I, I don't remember what year. It was maybe early 90s, I think. Um, and tar- so every year for a while there, Target would secure some celebrity to be their person for their Christmas campaign. So she was the, the one that year. So I recorded the music for this stuff in my studio here, and then I went down to Nashville to record, put her vocals on it. So I'm in there, and you know the, the contract said she had to have her own engineer, her own uh, uh, manager, her own agent. Her, it was like, so I'm sitting at the console with the engineer. You know, I'm with the talk back. She's in the studio. And her entourage is in the back of the room sitting on couches. Basically boring holes into the back of your head? Well, not at first. So we're, <laughs> we're doing this thing. And when, whenever you would do a target campaign, you, you know, you'd have to do a five-second sting or a 10, a 15, a 30, a 60, and a full-length song. And these are things that she's singing or just talking? Is it just voiceover? No, she's singing. Yeah, okay. No, it okay. was, a, it was yeah. a song I wrote for so her she, to oh, sing. So, so she had a track to sing to? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and a pretty damn good track, if you ask me. <laughs> um, so, so she's there. And, you know, Amy is not, I, I will say, she's not a lickmeister. So she's not the kind of person that, she's not like Christina Aguilera who can do all these wicked turns and stuff. And that wasn't really a thing back then as much. But she wasn't very good at that. And I had a few things that I'd written for her to do. And she was just, you know, she was struggling with it a little bit. She wasn't getting it nailed in. And her, um, her agent was sitting in the back of the room. And after, after a take, he'd stand up and he'd come over and he'd put his hands on my shoulders and he'd say, that's pretty good, don't you think? And I go, well, and this was before auto-tune, uh-huh. you know, which fixes pitch discrepancies in, in singers, for those of you who aren't into that. Um, so that hadn't been invented yet. So you act, singers actually had to sing in tune. <laughs> Way back when. Yeah. <laughs> you figure. Because if it wasn't in tune, it wasn't in tune. There was nothing you could do about yeah, it. Right. You're not going to be able to so, you know, mix I, that later and fix no, it. You can't no, fi- you couldn't fix that in the mix back then. You can now. But, and, I'm, and I looked at him, I go, well, you know, I'm the producer on this. This is my reputation. Target hired me to deliver something that I think is a quality product, so... So this went on for probably 40 minutes, you know, and he would keep getting up and putting his hands on my shoulder and saying, yeah, that was pretty good. That was good enough, don't you think? And I would say, no, I, I don't think so. And Amy couldn't hear any of this, but yeah. she's watching it because she's on the other side of the glass. So Finally, yeah. she takes her headphones off, puts them on the music stand, walks, opens the door, comes into the control room. She steps between me and I won't mention his name. And she looked at me and she goes, I'm not leaving, I'm not leaving here till, you've given, till I've given you exactly what you want on this. And she turned and she looked at her agent, didn't say a word to him, and he went and sat down. He never said a word the rest of the <laughs> he time. He never came back up. And I'm just going, wow. That's a pro move. That's integrity. Yeah. You know, because she yeah. goes, I know that you have a reputation that you have to uphold. And she, and she knew... She knew when she her pitch wasn't perfect. So yeah. it's like she didn't want that to go out either. Yeah. But her agent just I don't know. So just wanted wanted the session to be done as quickly as possible. Yeah. Get the paycheck and go. So and I let me tell you, I've worked with a lot of local singers and singers in other cities who were not stars, who were like, that was good enough, you know. Yeah. And so when you get somebody who actually is a pro and says that wasn't good enough. I respect that a lot. I think that says, it says a lot about the person, but also, as you said, 
those people who settle for good enough, they're they're local. They're not yeah, the immigrants. They're right. not the the ones that you hear those stories about the singers or the musicians that are always looking to make sure that it's perfect. You know, in the Rolling Stones, it's Keith Richards. He, he is the guy that just kept, you know, we right. have to retake this. We have to retake this. We right. have to do this. You know, we got to get it. We got to nail it exactly. And right. Mick Jagger was the business side of things, but he yeah. wasn't, you know, on, on that. It wasn't there. And, you know, and you, you hear that on, on these components. And I think there's something to that of, again, it goes back to, like you said, the practice component, but it's that practice with intention and really trying to strive for that perfection or as close to it as you can get. Yeah. And it's not always musical perfection. It's feel perfection. Because in music, you know, I I actually prefer singers who don't sing perfectly. Mm. In fact, I I would even pay somebody in LA to go find singers for me because I wanted, I wanted singers that had unique character to their voice, especially, well, you know, in any, any kind of music, but especially in advertising, how do you create something that stands out? Yeah. You know, because yeah. the whole thing of, you know, differentiate or die. Yeah. I don't know if you've read that book. Um, but, you, you know, in music... There's, there's a lot of competition. There's a lot of noise out there. How do you stand out? Well, and that, in advertising, you really need to do that or people switch channels. And, it, you know, in, in what I find fascinating in this conversation is you're talking about the soundtrack behind what is probably the main focus of most of these commercials. Maybe not all, yeah. right? But, for the, but, but it is an important aspect and it sets... We'll go back into priming, right? Because you are priming different components right. of, of how people then interpret everything else. And so if you don't set the right mood, the right tone, frame it up with that intro, right? I mean, because that's usually the first thing you hear is, is there's a musical component that comes right. in. That sets that tone. And so there's a whole component around there. I was just in New York, and I talked to Tim about this. I just came back, and there was a program I did that was called The, the Taste of Music, Huh. And we were in this high fidelity um, record or listening, um, listening studio, room, yeah. listening room, right? Not this. It was yeah. it was you know, hundred and fifteen thousand dollars speakers in front sure. of us. All the I mean, there's just these pieces of art for the speakers and the and the you know turntable they and everything that, else. They call that speaker porn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was. It <laughs> was. I, I'm not that guy, and I was I was salivating. So no, I'm um, jealous. But we but we had glasses of wine and some food. And you would take a sip of the wine and, you know, taste it. And then they'd play a piece of music. And then huh. you taste the wine again. And it, ta- it changed the taste of the wine. I'm not yeah. the wine guy. I'm not the guy that can go, you know, take some swirled around and go, oh, there's a bit of, you know, apricot. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, blah, blah, yeah, yeah. Blah, yeah. Oh, it smells, <laughs> yeah. all right, it smells yeah. fruity. Okay, And then I taste yeah. it. Yeah, it tastes fr- kind of fruity. I don't know. I can tell tannins and not tannins. But, you know, I'm not yeah, that right. big a guy. I could tell the difference. And then they played a different piece, and it, again, changed that taste of that wine yeah. differently. And so music has a component that I think is much more intensive than we realize in how we not only taste things, but how we interpret things, how we view a commercial, can make or break, a, you know, again, Movies, soundtracks, oh, yeah. everything, all of that. This so. was kind of Dan Levitin's uh, thesis, right? In this is your brain on music. Yeah, yeah. You know how all, all this stuff that's happening in our brains that doesn't occur without music and occurs differently because of different types of music. Yeah. Even as simple as why a minor chord makes us feel a little sadder than a major chord. Yeah. Uh-huh. Always frustrated me a little bit, but oh, how so? Well, because not a lot of people in advertising want something in a minor key. Oh, I, I felt a little limited that uh, always had, having to write in major keys. Yeah, right. It's like, come on, more up, Terry, and I go. This is more fun. <laughs> but you're right. Music, music has power that we don't even really we understand. Yeah. you know, and it's and we can't put words to it. But it it impacts so much of what we do in life. Yeah. I mean, I it's like I have I have three daughters, and we just did a thing with our family where okay, write down five things that you love, and this is not has nothing to do with anybody else. Just five things that you love. Right. Every one of them put down music. 
Yeah. Now, they don't all like the same kind of music necessarily, <laughs> but music speaks to them in ways. And it, it, it's a mood enhancer, a mood changer. It, it has so much power. Yeah. You know, and that's why in some ways, yeah, I, I, felt, I felt a little bad maybe that I was manipulating people with music to make them buy things. But... Um, but it was fun. Yeah. Let's let's say influence. Yeah, we don't have okay. to say we don't have to use right. manipulate is a little heavy handed. But yeah, yeah. Influence. Yeah. Although that's what the ad agencies were asking me <laughs> to do. <laughs> the yeah, heavy we, we, handedness was not something they were concerned about, as yeah. long as that the the consumer didn't know we were being heavy handed. Yeah. Well, well, we we we've interviewed a, a couple agency people and. Uh, yeah, I think they've they're, they're trying to say influence now. At yeah. least at least in the podcast with yeah. us. Maybe not yeah, to, right. maybe not the people that they're hiring to actually yeah. got to get them to do this. Yeah, right. So, <laughs> all right. Well, with that Terry, on that note, boom chick. <laughs> uh, thank you for joining us in the Behavior Group studio today. Uh, this has been been really fun, guys. Thank you. Yeah, I, I love this. Welcome to our grooving session, where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our behavioral groups interview, have a free-flowing discussion on some of those topics, and whatever else comes into our bicycle-helmeted heads. Thank goodness we're being safe. We are. We're being safe riders today. We are such safe people. I love that. (laughs) How safe are we? (laughs) We're safe enough to talk about choice architecture today. All right. And choice (laughs) architecture being from what component that we are talking? Coming from Terry's brilliant move to uh, only show six bikes that are height and uh, category appropriate. Yeah, I thought that was really great. Yep. What else are we going to talk about? Let's also talk about this volunteer registration system, the oh, vetting the system. I love that. And and just the components of, of how that applies some behavioral principles that probably were unintended, but really very powerful. Or just perfecto, yeah. And, and what else, Kurt? Well, I think the last thing is just how they don't turn away any bikes. And right. And what that means, again, from a behavioral psychology kind of perspective. So we'll we'll groove on that. Sounds good. Okay. All right. Let's get started. You go. <laughs> All right. Or should uh, I go? Obviously this is so well scripted. I'm sure that our listeners are going, "Wow, this is just so driven." So no, we, okay. we don't script the grooving sessions. So know, so for everybody that's out there listening, Actually, we don't script our interviews. We don't script our grooving session. We're not even scripting our intros anymore. No. So we talked about uh, we talked about this brilliant move to take from the thousands of bikes that are available to have a big curtain and rod so that only six are shown that are height and category appropriate. And my instant, you know, my first read was to go back to you know the paradox of choice, Barry Schwartz, exactly, and then my. Favorite is Sheena Yengar's book uh, called The Art of Choosing. Which, tell the, the story, again, many of our listeners have probably heard this, but it's about jelly. I mean, one of the famous, famous research was on jelly. Yeah, so when Sheena was at Stanford getting her PhD, she went to a grocery store in Palo Alto and set up two different tasting stands. And on certain days, customers would walk in and see a tasting stand that had six flavors of jelly on the tasting stand. And on other days, they would walk in and see 24 flavors of jelly on the tasting stand. And they gave everyone a coupon as they came in the door. And what Sheena was measuring and, and her, her co-authors were measuring were how, how many people stopped to taste of, of everyone that comes in the door. Step number one. Step number one. In other words, does it attract attention? And then the second was how much jelly got sold. Step number two. Ultimately, which is what every manufacturer of jelly wants to know. How can I sell more jelly? And so what she found is that the tw- the station with 24 flavors attracted a lot more people. A lot of people went and tasted jellies. They were really into it. Way more than the people who, who were exposed only to six flavors. Hey, that flavor I wanted, purple, you know, raspberry bee jam, was not on there. However... However, the the amount of jelly sold was three times greater in the lesser choice option. Three times greater. Three times greater in, in raw you know numbers, not number just, of jars. Yeah, not percentage, but actual number of jars. They sold a lot more jelly, and so 
Sina Yengar talks about the tyranny of choice in this beautiful way that says, giving people what we ask for, we always ask for more and more choice. Give me everything. Show me all the options. It's not good for us. It doesn't help us decide. And that's what Terry did, again, accidentally, but from this perspective of saying, we're not going to show these kids a thousand bikes that they get to run around and choose from. A, it'd be a madhouse from a logistics perspective, but B... And the parents would drive them crazy. The parents would drive <laughs> them crazy. But B, it just it, it actually impedes those kids from actually selecting the bike that is probably best for them. And so by limiting their choice, he has done this amazing facet of this. Companies need to think about this when they're in their web design and they're, they're deciding how many pr uh, products to show uh, on every screen. They need to think about how people are going to make decisions about this. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great thing in, in all of our lives, just on personal side too. You know what? Sometimes you don't have to have 20 different choices, right? You're picking out vacation places where you want to go. You know, sometimes it's easier to just say, hey, let's let's have four choices and we'll right. pick from those four. Let's not keep searching uh, after we, we do that. Because it just becomes uh, bad. Yeah. <laughs> let's just like, get... just becomes bad. Yeah, just bad. Yeah. yeah. It's like a U2 song. <laughs> so let's talk about... I, I meant U2 as in the song bad, not that U2 not... songs are bad. I actually like U2. So yeah. just making sure people... Okay. Clearly understand they have a song bad. There we go. Was U2 formed before 1978? They were probably formed right around that time. Right around they? that time. Right around yeah. that time. So yeah, I'm Just not curious. sure exactly when, but they were they were the you know epitome of an 80s band. So so let's talk about the, <laughs> the really great uh, behavioral science work that Terry is doing in the volunteer application <sighs> process. That again, he is the accidental behavioral scientist. So uh, he's completely unaware of the, of the psychology behind it, and the science behind it, but he totally kicks ass on this. This was, I thought, was one of the most amazing pieces. And so if you have any type of component where you're designing how to tier people or triage people in a volunteer or maybe even in other, you know, work kind of things, this was great. You know, for the volunteer registration, have you ever changed a bike tire? No. Congratulations. Congratulations. You are a cleaner. You know, I mean, uh, congrats. So I, I won something because <laughs> right. I don't, I don't know how to change a bike tire. Now I'm actually, I'm pumped. I'm, it's not like, Oh, you don't, you've never changed a bike tire? Well, I guess we'll let you clean a bike, yeah. you know? Yeah. Well, you're, you're unfortunately not going to qualify for our engineering program. Yeah, so you, you, we aren't going to be able to do anything meaningful yeah, and yeah. we'll put you over there in the corner. You're not no. going to, you don't, you don't have enough to be a prepper, right? So don't, don't show <laughs> them the next level. Don't show that. And that was great. I mean, you it think was. about the component of how that's framed. Framing, yes. He has framed that conversation now in that real easy-to-use web sign-up registration. So you're not doing a lot of work. So it it's East at its best, right? Easy, attractive. I'm going to spell it right this time. Social, right? When you start and doing your, your element and then timely, right? You're, it's you're happening up. at that moment. Yeah, you're, you're signing up. So yeah. I thought that was great. That is pretty tricky. That's pretty terrific. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Okay, and then the last thing we wanted to talk about was this uh, wonderful aspect of the donors being treated with... Terry was just talking about it as respect, right? right. No donor is turned away. No bike is turned away. But there is a, a, an important behavioral science aspect to this, isn't right. there? You could bring in the rust bucket, junky, <laughs> crappiest bike ever, right? Probably what I rode for you know many, many years. And they're going to say, oh, thank you for this bike. And, you know, thank you for your donation. Nothing gets like, oh, we can't take that. It's just, it doesn't fit. Like when you go into some of those clothing restores, right? And they're like, you're, you're trying to volunteer and, and bring in your, your old, and they're going, ah, yeah, those jeans have a hole in them and, and we're not going to take those. Or, yeah. oh yeah, we have too many socks and you can't you know use those right now. And, and so you go and you got to take them back and you're going, oh, they're not, my stuff isn't good enough for, for others. Right? right, right. And that's not consistent with the self-image that you have as a donor. Right. So it's a self-image of, of A, I'm a donor, but also that, you know, this is something I obviously valued it enough to bring it in. 
you know, that right. I felt that there was some worth in this piece. And so you're saying your judgment is is still intact. You you are you, you did not misjudge this. It's not like yeah. oh yeah, I took those jeans in or the best is trying to to well, this is a whole different thing, but trying to sell back books to the used bookstores, right? <laughs> what, is this an endowment effect? Like my books are worth way more than that. Well, my books are like there, but they won't even take my books. Come on. <laughs> it's like, oh, no, God, no. Not another one of those. Either it's too many of them or it's just you know, nobody reads those or whatever it would be. So. I totally felt both loss aversion and endowment effect when I was uh, got rid of, I moved out of a big house and had a thousand books that I was trying to get rid of. And I had some that I thought were worth something, took them to some really kind of cool, vintage, used bookstores. Yeah, yeah, we'll give you 25 bucks for this one. I, oh my God, are you kidding? That's a valuable book. It's been sitting <laughs> on my shelf for 20 years. No, it's 20 bucks. Yeah, that's how it works. So yeah, That's how it works. So, Tim, I have a musical question for you. Oh, really? Yes. God, okay, I don't know. So we talked with Terry about my experience at the, um, the Taste of Music in yes. New York. Yeah. Have you ever tasted music? So I don't, that's a good question. I don't know if I have. I don't, I'm not sure if I'm aware of food tasting differently depending on the kind of music that I was listening to at the but time. But now you haven't ever done a, an experiment. On I this. haven't. You have not like, no. had a glass of wine in your hand and played you know, some Bach and then switched it over to some folk or switched it over to some Bob Dylan and see no. if that changes, right? I haven't. But I... Do know the difference that that environment does make a difference on music. All right, explain that. So, from night to night, I'll play in different places, and I'll play the same song, and playing it, it's coming from me. I know it a particular way, and there might be some modest amount of variation, but it feels very different playing it in bar number one versus bar number two versus listening room number three. Is those it, are all very different experiences for me as an as an artist to to play those songs. Is it is it the structural environment or is it the social environment? Is it the is it the people that are there or is it because the room itself is designed different or is it some combination? It's both. Okay. It, it, and it's certainly all of that. The, whether or not there's alcohol being sold, whether people are talking, whether it's a listening spot where it's supposed to be quiet, all those things influence it. But the actual experience of the song is different every in every one of those situations. Is it different in the same venue, maybe on different nights with different audiences? Yes. An, an audience does. I know that we've talked about this in the past, and I've not played up the value of the audience, but the audience absolutely has an impact on the ultimate experience. So again, translating that into non-musical components, <laughs> which I like to do. Cor corporations should invest more in their product development. No, that's, not, that's probably not where you were going. <laughs> that, sure, that's a good translation. No, where I wanted to go with that is just understanding how context matters in these situations. And so not only in the user experience and the end component of, of what gets bought, um, what gets consumed, but in this element of saying, hey, when we're testing something, when we're doing our research on this, we have to make sure that we aren't having unintended you know, components factoring in the location, the music that's playing in the background. So if people are doing, hey, if we're having a consumer taste test of a certain wine, and we have certain music in the background. It's going to influence things. That could potentially influence. That The wine could be a fantastic wine, but paired with that music, paired in that environment, it would have a negative connotation. And so we don't think about that. We just, and again, how many times do we, do, do companies do product testing in labs, in non-real world situations? So that is going to be an entirely different experience for people than having that ex you know that experience in you know a living room or in a restaurant or wherever definitely, it is definitely so the way that we consume an, an ad on the television or over the radio is influenced by the music that's playing 
Oh yeah, through, through that ad. And Terry talked about that. Yeah, now. absolutely. I mean, that was a lot of what he did. Yeah. So, all right. Okay. So let's do a quick recap. Okay, so uh, we talked a little bit about uh, how choice architecture as a behavioral science tool plays into Terry's model of, uh, his accidental behavioral scientist model of only selecting six spikes for each, each uh, child based on height and, uh, and category. Right. Uh, so, and, and, so, and the big payoff there is using choice architecture makes it easier for the people to choose and makes it better for the people who are actually doing the choosing. They're more satisfied. And we talked about his volunteer experience and, again, how that gets framed and framed very positively, leaving those people with this great idea of, hey, I'm a cleaner because congratulations. <laughs> there you go. You won a prize. Yeah. And, and last. Lastly, we talked about how donors benefit from uh, from the, both the consistency uh, of, of self-image uh, when they're do- donating their bike. And then that breeds into all kinds of social benefits of, hey, I'm a donor. I you know, I gave my bike away and you should do the same. You've they, probably got an old bike. And they're going to go out and talk about it and they're going to probably a positive come back way. next year and donate another piece of crap bike. But hey. <laughs> It's all good. It's all possible. So listeners, thank you for hanging in with us. And again, if you liked this episode, please, please, we we beg you. I don't know if we beg. No, we should beg because it really makes a difference in the ratings. Uh, it, it actually influences how many people get to see Behavioral Grooves as, as a referral based on the kind of reviews that we get. So right. it does make and, a difference. And we do. I mean, our, our purpose is still to build this community and to expand people who can gain some insight into how behavioral science can make their lives better or their, or their work better. So please leave us a, a review and give us a five-star rating if you think we deserve it. And with that, thank you. Thank you.